Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 1. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. And as they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. And the land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see me. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. Father, give us grace to understand the vision of Ezekiel and the prophecies in this book and give us comfort and strength in the knowledge of what you have done and what you're doing among us. I ask your Holy Spirit to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thursday night was a rough night. Thursday night, of course, our shepherds met. We discussed issues important to the church. The rough thing about Thursday night was knowing that the Miami Heat (laughs) took out the uh, San Antonio Spurs in a 4-3 game turnaround NBA victory. Meeting was great. The uh, game, not so much. I was getting texts from my brother through the meeting. Are you watching this? Are you paying attention to this? And I said, I'm in a meeting. (laughs) Get out, he said. (laughs) LeBron James has become the most celebrated player of the NBA with the Miami Heat. Uh, With constant comparisons now to Michael Jordan. People looking at LeBron James and saying he is the, the, the Michael Jordan of the day. But have you seen his tattoos? On his chest is a winged lion. He's got sleeves on both of his arms, tattoo sleeves. On his right shoulder, it says Gloria. That's his mom's name. And on his left shoulder, it says Beast. I would advise against having a mark of the beast. But most notable is across his back, from shoulder to shoulder, he has tattooed Chosen and the letter 1. Chosen 1. Chosen 1. In all, LeBron James has over 30 tattoos. What does the Bible have to say about tattoos? 
You know, 30, 40 years ago, it was only the occasional naval personnel who had to ask that question. Things have changed in our culture. Leviticus 19.28, the Bible says, You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Not my word, that's God's word, Leviticus 19.28. You see, at the time, tattoos were rooted in pagan ritual and belief. That was the point of the tattoo. That's why you got a tattoo. In ancient Egypt, they were a common statement of pagan faith, specifically related to the dead. Isn't it interesting that today, demonic images and dead heads and skulls are still very popular tattoos? Now, I don't mean any offense or actually any judgment here, because we are not under law, we are under grace. Romans 6.14 tells us. And many passionate Jesus people, some of you, have tattoos, and often those tattoos are expressions of faith. I've seen crosses, I've seen uh, you know, crowns of thorns, all kinds of things, uh, verses, Hebrew words, different things that, that Christians have said, I, I want to be marked in, in such a way, I want this tattoo. But the proliferation of what is now called body art is a relatively recent phenomenon in our culture. I mean, it was not this popular. You didn't have tattoo parlors, even in small towns all across America, at least easy ones to find. (laughs) And why is that? What has changed? Johnny Depp, great theologian of our age, (laughs) made the comment, he said, my body is my journal and my tattoos are my story. I read that and I thought, well, some stories shouldn't be shared. (laughs) I mean, sometimes tattoos are permanent reminders of temporary feelings. Like the guy who had the name Rose tattooed right across his rib cage, and he looked into the eyes of his fiancée, Darla, (laughs) and said, honey, before we get married, there's just something I need to get off my chest. Thank you, thank you. Or like the guy who's covered head to toe with tattoos. He goes into his bank to make a withdrawal, and the banker took one look at him and said, I'm sorry, sir, but you are badly overdrawn. (laughs) Some of you are going to tell these jokes later. I know it. If you happen to be a tattoo artist, I do have another Bible verse for you. 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands upon anyone too quickly. But there is a mark you will never regret having. A mark that is not physical in form. It's one you can't see. It doesn't come from the hands of man. Ezekiel chapter 9. The prophet at this point, you all know, is still in Jerusalem. Having been caught up by a lock of his hair to witness four abominations... Immediately following that story, those visions of those four horrific things taking place in Jerusalem, now this takes place. So he is still in the place of vision. From chapter 8 through chapter 11, Ezekiel is receiving visions from God. He's in Jerusalem in the spirit. His body's still back in Babylon in his living room with the elders sitting there. And I don't know if this was instantaneous. Don't know how long it took. No idea. But he's caught up in the spirit in visions, the Bible tells us. And he sees all this going on. 
All the way 8, 9, 10, and 11. At the end of 11, finally he's back before the elders and he begins to share with them what the Lord has downloaded into his heart. That's where we are right now in the middle of this when Ezekiel 9 opens up. And again, verse 1 says, He cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. You don't want to hear the Lord say that. The Lord calling His executioners. And six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man, not one of the six, a seventh man, clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. And note this, then the glory of the Lord, the God of Israel, went up from the cherub, that is above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant. The glory goes up and out to the threshold of the temple. And we went through this in depth on Wednesday night. God departing. The glory of God, who had been there, present, His glory, present in the temple, all the way from the the opening day of the temple, the day of Solomon's dedication, the Shekinah glory, entered the temple. Now that same glory has just lifted up from the mercy seat and is on the way out in a tragic, tragic scenario. And you might want to listen on Wednesday night to the teaching because we went through that step by step, the stages of that departure. The old rabbis identified ten stages of the departure of the glory of God from above the ark all the way out to the threshold, ultimately to the Mount of Olives and then on up into the heavens. Shared Wednesday night, 2nd century Rabbi Yonatan claimed that the glory of God, once he had left the temple, remained on the Mount of Olives for three and a half years. I don't know where he got that. But it's an interesting thought because Jesus' ministry was roughly three and a half years. And so there is a, a, a stalling of leaving. The point is, the departure of the glory of the Lord was slow going. He didn't just zip on out of there. Not like God was ready to head off on vacation and shorten his sermon. Don't worry, I won't. His leaving, the rabbis say, was of sorrowful, longing reluctance. And I think that's worth noting. The Lord did not want to leave. Do you know He never does? He never wants to leave. He always wants to be there. He is not the first one to the door. He would far rather remain among His people. God loves to be up close and personal, ultimately to abide in the heart. Because He is not a God of departure. He is a God of indwelling. And He wants to remain. John 14.23, Jesus said, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's Jesus' promise. We want to reside with you. I want to be present in your heart with you. And regarding Israel's future, the Lord says in Ezekiel 37, 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. Bible students, how long is everlasting? (laughs) Forever. My dwelling place will also be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is God's promise to Israel, not Israel's promise to God. In other words, it's not their uh, responsibility to keep. It's His. And so He will. And so for the Lord, leaving is grieving. But His glory cannot abide sin. 
And so he calls out seven men, six slayers, one who will save. The cherubim are unique among the angels, most of whom appear to look like men. And these six men are that. They are angels. Six angels with a calling. They just look like men. They are not four-faced creatures. They don't have wings with eyes all about like the, like the cherubim we've already seen. These are just six angels who again have that appearance of men. They bear shattering weapons, our Bibles tell us. Shattering weapons, literally instruments of slaughter. I believe the world will see these angels again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 tells us the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the six men. But who's the seventh man? For some of you, very obvious. I've already heard whisperings here. But let's think this through and be certain. The seventh, this man clothed in linen with a writing case at his side. Linen speaks of righteousness in the Bible. Linen is what the priests were to wear. The the linen ephod was a priestly garment worn in temple service. In fact, isn't it interesting, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest who had the breastplate and he had the headdress and he had all of the the things that, that made his dress look so beautiful, when he went in to the Holy of Holies to stand in the presence of God one day a year and make atonement for the people... All he wore was the linen ephod. All the rest was set aside that he would go in simply and purely with that picture, again, of righteousness. We know linen is the saintly clothing of the future. Revelation 19, verse 8, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Fine linen is the clothing of the saints. I can't read that verse without thinking of Tracy Miles several years ago made the comment. She said, does it have to be a linen robe? Can I have like linen sweatpants and a t-shirt? Would that be okay? I'm sure we can work something out. Fine linen represented righteousness. Represents also high rank or authority. In fact, Daniel chapter chapter 10 verse 5 says, I lifted up my eyes and behold... And I looked and there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Ufats. And his body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Who is that in Daniel's vision, students of Revelation? Well, that's obviously Jesus. The exact same description that John gives in Revelation chapter 1 of Jesus Christ, Daniel sees Jesus. And he's wearing the linen robe. But along with the linen garments, this man is carrying a writing case. That's an interesting word in the Hebrew. Writing case is keset. Keset. And it literally means a scribe's palette. It's described this way. A portable, narrow, rectangular wooden board with a long groove to hold reed pens and shallow ink wells for ink of red and black. It was a portable tablet for record keeping. Another version of the iPad, early on. You know, God's got a book, right? God has a book. It's a ledger of sorts. Psalm 139.16 tells us, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained, 
when as yet there was not one of them. Isaiah 4 verse 3 says, It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 says, Now at that time, speaking of the time of the end, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, that is over Israel, will rise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, Daniel, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So the man is dressed in linen, carrying a writing case, going out to mark God's remnant for salvation. The pre-incarnate Christ. Mitch was sharing at communion. He was saying the exact representation, the exact imprint, Hebrews 1 verse 3, of His nature. And people have struggled with that. With, with the representation of God by Christ. What, how is Christ related, Jesus, to the Father in the Godhead? How does that work? The Trinity... And we shared in here before, typically we think of it kind of triangular. Uh, we see God at the top and then Jesus somewhat below the Lord and the Holy Spirit a little bit south of Jesus, you know, just in relation to each other. And the reality is, God is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Amen. That's the most simple way of dealing with the, with the idea of the Trinity. That the Son has the authority of the Father. That the Son has the glory of the Father. The Father said, I will not share my glory with anyone. Well, then how can the Son have the glory? Only if the Son is the Father. Right? And so, Daniel sees him dressed in that linen. And here, the man with the writing case, dressed in linen, I believe, is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. And we see this all over the Hebrew Scriptures. Anytime you see God in the flesh, anytime you see a representation of God in the flesh, that's Jesus. That's His role. The sixth exact a striking judgment, but the seventh man is sent to save. And is that not what Jesus does? Well, verse 4 tells us, The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said, Go through the city after him and strike, and do not let your eye have pity, and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. Skip down to verse 11. It tells us, Then behold, the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case, reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. And some might say, Well, that sounds like Jesus. If that's Jesus, is less than God. No, Jesus says the Son always does what He sees the Father doing. Jesus has no problem taking command from God. In their equal relationship... Because they don't have power issues like we do. So, the man goes and makes the mark. And there are many remarkable similarities between Ezekiel and Revelation. We've already seen some, and this is no exception. So keep your finger here, and let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Revelation, chapter 7, verse 1. 
John is writing. He's in the midst of receiving, of, of giving this, uh, receiving this revelation and, and sharing it. He says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Who are these specially marked people? These are the distant offspring of the people the Lord had marked in Ezekiel chapter 9. The people in Revelation 7 and the people of Ezekiel 9 are related because these are Israel. And for anyone who would question this, the Lord is absolutely clear in His Word. Continuing on in verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Sibion, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. There's only one uh, group missing there. Anyone know? It's Dan. Dan is missing. Why? Listen to the Revelation study if you want to find out. I'd love to go into it. Don't have time right now. But there's one tribe missing, and yet all these other 144,000 Jewish people who will be sealed. And sealed to a very specific purpose. Understand, they are not Mormon. Historical Mormonism originally taught, and Brigham Young was huge on this, originally taught the 144,000 were the Mormons. Anytime a cult group does that, they run into a problem when they have 145,000. Or 144,001. Because suddenly we have too many to claim this number, so then they have to allegorize. Well, it's a large number to depict our group like the Jehovah's Witnesses do. They claim that for themselves. Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventists claimed that her movement, her group, were the 144,000. The Worldwide Church of God claims this. Even though it's worldwide. (laughs) They are not the church, gang. The 144,000 are so absolutely clearly not the church. This is sealed Israel. And this flies in the face of replacement theology because if you believe that Israel was replaced by the church, you got to deal with this. And people then, obviously, they, they have to run to allegory. We've got to make it a metaphor. Because if we take it literally, it can't be literal. Be careful. Because when you start to allegorize anything in Scripture that Scripture doesn't tell you is an allegory, you're walking on thin ice. Oh, there are allegories in Scripture, and there are parables, and there are metaphors, and there are pictures and types. The Scripture is always very clear about what is a picture and what is literal. And the difference is the literal things are never called pictures. I saw 144,000 of every tribe of the sons of Israel. Isaiah talks about that marking that will take place. That's in the tribulation at the end of this age. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 19, the Lord says, I will put a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations 
Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, Jabin, to the distant coastlands who have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, on camels, any way they can get there, they're going to get there. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And so this 144,000, these marked Jews, are evangelists and they are rescuers. They are evangelists in that God is going to send 144,000 to the nations. By the way, about half of that is the number of missionaries in the world today. So a huge number of Jewish missionaries going out in the tribulation to take the word of God out to those who will hear it. And that same group bringing back into the land those survivors who receive their Messiah. Who believe truly in Jesus. Now back in Ezekiel 9, knowing exactly who the marked people are at the end of the age, and seeing here who the marked people are, again among the people of God, the Jewish people in Jerusalem... Those who sigh and groan over all the abominations, he says, go, mark them out. What's interesting here is what the mark is. Because it's not a word. In verse 4 and also down in verse 6, the word mark is a letter. It's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. It's just the letter Tav. Go put a Tav on their foreheads. Well, what's the Tav? In ancient Hebrew script, that is the script being used in the day, the Tav was a cross. Just a little mark of the cross. In fact, it looked like that. Exactly like that. That was the mark that the man in linen, the pre-incarnate Christ, was to go throughout Jerusalem and put on the foreheads of all those who were still faithful to the Lord. Sign of the cross. Amazing. But here's the point, and here's what I I really want you to get this morning, what all this reminds us, Isaiah 66, Ezekiel 9, Revelation 7, it reminds us of this important truth, God marks His people. He always does. Now the church does not replace Israel, but the pattern is here. The departure of the glory of God followed immediately by the marking of God's people in Jerusalem. Note that pattern. The departure followed by the marking. And we saw it happen another time. In the departure of Jesus and the marking of His people. Jesus departed like the Shekinah glory. He departed from the Mount of Olives ascending to heaven. And He will return, the angels tell us in Acts chapter 1, the same way that He ascended, He'll return. And He will return, Zechariah 14, to the Mount of Olives. And in the same way that Jesus then departed, and that Shekinah glory departed, well then God marks His people. And so we should expect, if God is consistent, there would be a marking following the departure of Jesus. And there was. John 14, 16, just before all this would take place. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. And that is the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. Get more personal. The Spirit of Christ. Not the vague Holy Spirit as an it, as the force. 
but the Spirit of Christ, the third member of the Godhead of the Trinity, equal with the Father, the Spirit of God, His Spirit. Just as your Spirit is your Spirit, so His Spirit is His Spirit. And I will leave Him with you. He will come to you. Jesus says in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, wait a minute. How can you do that? You're, you're the one departing. But I'm going to come to you. How can you depart and come to me? In my Spirit. But isn't it the Holy Spirit? Yes, and don't call me it, please. But isn't the Spirit God's Spirit? Yes. And I'm coming to you, Jesus says, yes. Understand? It's one and the same. In John 14, 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, Jesus says. Because I live, you will also live. And ten days after Jesus' ascension, He gave the mark. The mark that would go on all believers, the mark, His Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.21 tells us, Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, whom also gave us or sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Listen to those words one more time. Be clear about what Paul is saying. He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, marking the believers by dwelling in the hearts of believers. We are sealed. We are marked by the Spirit of the living God. We are not gods, but we are gods, apostrophe S, (laughs) in in that we belong to Him, in that we are marked by Him. And I was just thinking through this and how marvelous it is and how wonderful and how... And we've talked about this back when we studied Isaiah back uh, not too many months ago. We were in Isaiah 66 and we talked about this being marked, this being sealed by His Spirit. But as I was considering Ezekiel 19, I came across some things here that were a little different, maybe a slightly different slant on what this marking does. What actually is taking place when we are marked by the Spirit. And I want to draw some conclusions from that this morning, from Ezekiel 9. First off, we need to understand that this is a mark of spiritual belonging. It's a mark of spiritual belonging. And I love that. I doubt the Tav was visible on those in Jerusalem. Those who were marked probably didn't even know they had it. But what they would know is they belonged. In the most simple of terms, they survived. They would belong to the group of survivors. They would survive and be taken on into exile among their other fellow survivors in Babylon. They would arrive in time to hear Ezekiel's fantastic, wonderful uh, Prophecies, seven years worth of prophecies of the future of Israel. They belonged. They received in this mark a spiritual belonging. Everyone longs to belong. You know, every one of us, we want to belong to someone or some group or something, no matter how independent we claim to be. I love Steve Martin years ago, I probably shared this, but he said, Let's all recite the nonconformist oath. Okay, well, you recite this with me. Recite after me. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. <laughs> the nonconformist oath. What's so re- remarkable about a nonconformist is they look for other nonconformists. 
so that they could all be nonconformist together. <laughs> they can conform to their nonconformity. You know, and I've gone through it with several of my kids growing up, you know. They want to look like a certain group. Why do you want to look this way? Why do you want to dress this way, my son, my daughter? And the response is always the same. Because I want to be different. You mean like everybody else in your high school class? Yeah. You know, if there's a heart beating in your chest, you want to belong to someone or something. And there is a spiritual belonging that far surpasses any physical belonging, any mental belonging, any emotional belonging we might have in this world. The spiritual belonging that comes with the marking of Christ Jesus. And you've been in that place. You're, You're off traveling somewhere or maybe you're in another country and you run into someone and you start to talk and you just know. And so one of you asks the question, Are you a Christian? Well, yes, I am. And off you go, sharing in the Spirit. The mark. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of your promise, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of, listen, God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Don't forget, precious people, that you belong to God. You've been marked by His Spirit. And so when He looks at you, He sees sons and daughters. He says, you belong to Me. You are My family. You are My children. But here's the thing. God's own possession. If you belong to Him, you belong to His church. Like it or not. Now most of you would say, well, I like it. But some do not. Some want to belong to God, but not to the church. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just not one of those Christians. I'm not one of those evangelical nutcases you hear about on the news all the time. That's not me. I believe in Jesus. And I belong. But I don't belong. And you can't have it both ways. If you belong to God, you belong to His people. Period. You may not always agree with His people. You may not always like His people. But you belong <laughs> To his people. I think about the 48 year relationship I have with my brother, which is one of my favorite relationships in the world. Ron's truly my best friend. But he hasn't always been. And there have been times where we saw, I mean, not only did we not see eye to eye, but we were head to head. We saw so differently on different issues, on different things. Seasons where it was difficult to even communicate. I I know none of you have those situations in your families, but (laughs) with Ron and I, we've gone through all that. But you know what? Nothing changed the fact that we were brothers. And I'm not talking by blood. My brother who pastors in Anacortes and who's speaking this morning as I'm speaking here, we share a belonging in Christ that ties us together like nothing else can. And the same with all of us. We are God's church. We belong to the church. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 2.47 There are church groups who go out there and say, we are the true church. I love when they say that. We're the true church. How do you know? (laughs) There's one way. There's only one way to know that you are part of the true church if you've been sealed by His Spirit. And those sealed by His Spirit are part of the true church. And they may be in any church on the planet. They may be in any denomination. They may be in some bizarre group that you and I on the outside would say, no way are there any Christians there. There may be some. 
I've been asked before, are Mormons Christians? Well, the faith is not a Christian faith. And the faith is not a biblical faith. And the God is not the God of the Bible. And the Jesus of Mormonism is not the Jesus of Scripture. However, are there some Mormons sitting out there who don't realize all that but just love Jesus? Probably. True church. We love our labels. But God labels us as His own. And He knows. And in the time of the rapture, that's when all will be made known, at least to us. We're going to know who was and who was not. Now, obviously, everyone who has been in attendance at the British Christian Fellowship are part of that true church. (laughs) You know, I I wish I could say that to give you comfort that you were saved this morning, but that's not where your salvation comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit of the living God. By faith, in the blood of Jesus, that's how you know you're saved. And part of this marked people who Jesus... Uh, it says this about him. John wrote this, John 1.12, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of the blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, uh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Kids, that's the family of Christ. That's us. And one of the truest marks of spiritual maturity is recognition that you belong to the church. And I want to encourage all of you, as I need encouragement myself, to embrace the church. To stand up for the church in this world and say, no, these are people who love Jesus. We are not a perfect people. We never claim to be. But we love Jesus and we love each other. And that's the deal. Marked to belong to Him and to belong to all who belong to Him. Ephesians 4.11 says he gave to the church some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I was having a conversation with a sister the other day and she was a college girl and she was saying, I've, I've kind of come to the point now where for a long time I considered myself as a follower of Jesus kind of separate from the church. I went to church, but I didn't really hang out with church people, my friends who were church people. You know, but I, you know, I, I figured it was my job to move in among lost people. So I didn't have that identity. And she said, now that I'm a few years into college, I'm starting to realize how much I want that identity and how precious that is to be part of the church. Marked to belong to Him and marked to belong to His people. In verse 9, verse 6 of chapter 9, the man is told, do not touch any man, or the angels, the destroying angels are told, do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. And I find that interesting. Start from my sanctuary. The marking begins at the sanctuary and branches out from there. And I read that and I Pray it and I will pray again right now. Mark your church with belonging, Lord. Mark us with belonging. So this is a mark of spiritual belonging. Secondly, it's also a mark of sorrow. It's a mark of sorrow. Mark the foreheads, verse 4, of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations. Part of being marked as a follower of Jesus in the world today is the experience of sorrow. 
We don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve for different reasons. We grieve like the Spirit grieves. In fact, the Bible tells us, Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of the living God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. But if the Spirit grieves, don't be surprised when you grieve as well. Think back to Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 14. We talked about this. Ezekiel was caught up in the Spirit. Do you remember what his experience of being in the Spirit was? He was embittered and he was enraged. Why? Because the Spirit was. Ezekiel was angered because the Spirit was angry. Ezekiel was sorrowful because the Spirit was sorrowful. We see among the people of God who received this mark, these are the men who sigh and groan over the abominations. They were there. There were some in Jerusalem who were not just going along with the tide of Jerusalem society. Who are not just accepting and trying to be relevant to their times. Therefore, the Asherah is cool because it's kind of a relevant picture of God. No. They were grieved by what they saw. They were sighing. They were crying. They were upset by it. Ezekiel was in the Spirit. He felt enraged, embittered. Jesus said, John 16, 8... He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But listen, though that is the Spirit's job, sometimes He uses you to accomplish it. I've heard Christians say, well, I don't want to be convicting because that's the Holy Spirit's job. You know, I don't want to judge. I don't want to talk about sin. I don't want to be overtly righteous. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Guess who He works through? Those who are sealed by Him. And He reaches out into this world. And yes, the Holy Spirit moves beyond us. He is not limited to us by any stretch. And He does convict people's hearts of sin and righteousness and judgment. But He also uses those who are marked by His Spirit to do the very same work. Understand, He may tap you for that reason. As we talked about a few weeks ago, to be a consternation in your family. (laughs) Because you're simply following Jesus. Marked by His Spirit. To be sorrowful when you turn on the TV and see some of the stuff going on. It should bum you out. Frankly, if it doesn't bum you out, if it doesn't bother you at all, it's probably because you're growing comfortable with the world. Worst case scenario, you're ignoring the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does want to stop us from going to certain websites. The Spirit does want to hold us back from watching certain movies. The Spirit does want to say, wait, do you really think that's the best place to witness to the glory of God? And He puts those promptings in our hearts. The Spirit speaking by our seal, and we either listen or we don't, and when we don't, we compromise. And when we do, Sometimes it's sorrowful. You know? I mean, it can be as simple as a bunch of friends going to see a movie and you really want to go with the friends, but you really know you shouldn't see the movie, so you go, uh, I, you guys go ahead. <sighs> Bummer. It would have been fun. Something as simple as that to something as serious as watching friends make sin choices and you can't stop them and it's breaking your heart. As is going on in my life right now. We should feel the conviction. John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so if I don't sigh and groan at what I see going on around me, I'm ignoring the grief of the Spirit that He is feeling. 
Now, please understand, I'm not saying that we need to then all be bummed. Oh, great teaching this morning, right? I just went home and wept all day. what I did. I am not denying the peace of the Spirit. And I don't deny godly contentment. And I certainly don't deny the joy of the Spirit. It belongs to all believers, but it is a joy that surpasses what we see going on. And it's a joy far beyond the ranks of this world. And that's the joy that we enjoy often in spiritual belonging. But there is a sorrow that comes with the mark. Because when you have the seal of the Spirit, you see with godly eyes and you recognize what's going on. And you know it's getting darker. That's a line in a recent song that we sing. As the darkness grows. Hey, the darkness is growing. And the Bible says we'll continue to grow and get darker until Jesus pulls us out. The sorrow. Do I sigh and cry? Do you grieve for this world? And it leads to a next issue of this mark. This mark of spiritual belonging, a mark of sorrow, number three, is a mark of suffering. And I don't mean to talk about this too much, and yet it's, I think, so important in these days, especially that we understand. I mean, think about the sighing, groaning lovers of God in Jerusalem. These people, the faith of their fathers was being overwhelmed by abominations. And so they sighed. The presence of their Lord was departing. And so they groaned. Their beloved temple was going to burn. And we know these dearly beloved of God were taunted and persecuted. By their own people, they were persecuted. For simply keeping the faith. Well, where do you have an example of that, Rick? Jeremiah. We just studied his whole book. I give you example after example after example of how one man simply did what God called him to do and was tremendously persecuted by it, not from outsiders, but from those on the inside. You may receive taunting and persecution from other Christians to whom you belong and walk away from those situations wondering, do they belong? (laughs) Do I want to belong to... And where there's that that lack of understanding, there is a suffering that comes with the seal. 1 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Timothy 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. If you bear the mark, the seal of the Holy Spirit, don't be surprised by suffering. Now, I'd like to add to that, don't be pathetic, self-absorbed, or whiny either. We're not called to walk around going, I'm a follower of Jesus. Man, it's just tough. Want to come to church with me? It's so interesting because there is, it's almost a disconnect. There's a dichotomy going on here in our spiritual lives between the joy of our salvation and the assurance and the conviction and the suffering and the sorrow that goes along with it. It's part of the deal. Stuff I would not have preached a decade ago. Because I think no one wants to hear about that. But it's the truth. And so when a joyful, happy Christian comes face to face with suffering or turmoil or sorrow, how do we deal with it? 
But part of the reason I think we need to talk about these things right now is when those times come, we're already prepared. Oh yeah, this is part of the deal. I know I'm going to suffer for this. I knew that I'd have some heartache. I still have the joy of the Lord. Amen. But all this stuff is going on. Galatians 6.17 One of my favorite Bible verses, the Apostle Paul says this, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. LeBron James bears the tattoo, Chosen One, across his shoulders. Jesus' shoulders bore a different mark, didn't they? I I think, personally, they probably still bear the marks of the scourging. In the same way that I believe when we see the hands of Christ, they will still bear the nail print scars. If we see His side, the, the scar of the spear print that proved His chosen death. Talk about the chosen one. He was marked in a different way. Well, Paul says, I bear those marks. I bear the brand marks of Jesus. Paul could say that. He bore similar scars. Paul was scourged twice. Paul was stoned and left for dead multiple times. Paul's body would have been bruised and marked and beaten and printed so that when he says, I've got the mark, it would carry not only a spiritual meaning, but a very physical meaning. The mark of God may tag you with tragedy or with trauma or with tribulation. I tell you that simply for understanding, but I follow that with the words of Jesus, John 16.33, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Final thing on the mark. It is a mark of salvation. Above and beyond everything else, it is a mark of salvation. Verse 6, Do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. Every single marked man in Jerusalem would be spared Nebuchadnezzar's army. Miraculously would come out unscathed and would make their way to join and belong with the rest of the exiles. Every single marked person Untouchable. What about their descendants? 144,000 in the future tribulation. They will be sealed. They're marked. Will they all make it? Revelation 14 verse 1 says, I looked and behold the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. Not 141,004. Not 142,091. Not even 143,999. But the 144,000 of Revelation 7 are all present on Mount Zion with the Lamb at the end of the tribulation having been sealed for salvation. That's what happens when you get sealed. That's what the mark does is it secures salvation for you. If you're marked by the Spirit of God, you are marked for salvation. You will be there. The 144,000 sealed servants on Mount Zion, which by the way, talk about the ultimate end of Zionism. They are there. That is the Zionist dream. To live in Zion. To dwell in the land. And these 144,000 are there with the Lamb, sealed. And if you're marked by Jesus, by faith in His grace, you can absolutely be certain you will be there too. Because the mark is a mark of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Tattoos are permanent because the body dies and the skin shrivels and dries up and goes away unless you can figure out a way to tattoo bones. And even those ultimately will end up burned. What about a permanent mark? People talk a lot in these days about leaving their mark. LeBron James, the mark of LeBron James to be the greatest NBA player ever to have lived. And I think, well, how long has the NBA even been around? And you want to be the greatest in this, you know, 60, 70, 80 year period of time in all of history. That, that's, your, that's your mark. You know, I, I love watching him play, but come on. Chosen one. This is my mark that I'm leaving on the world. And so, you know, a lot of artists and athletes... Famous people start to get into philanthropy because they start to realize that their mark is not that impressive a mark. It doesn't really do anything for anyone. So they try to do stuff for people, but even those things that they try to do oftentimes are just going to burn. They're just going to disappear. People talk about leaving a legacy. I want to leave my mark in this world. Listen, there's one way to do it. And that is you leave His mark. You leave His mark. Well, how do I do that? By living His mark right now. By living your life as a marked, sealed person of Jesus Christ so that the world knows. You know, come hell or high water so that the world knows. Come tribulation or trauma or sorrow or suffering or joy or salvation. Regardless of what is coming, you live the mark. Live the mark that you've been given. Embrace your spiritual belonging. If there be suffering, sorrow, share your salvation. Because Jesus has his writing case at his side. There's another name for that writing case. It's called the book of life. And Revelation 3.5 tells us, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Father, to be sealed for salvation. What a remarkable comfort and confidence we have. And it is in this comfort and confidence, Lord, that we can walk. And this is what I'm asking, Lord, for myself, for my brothers and sisters here, that we will walk in the mark, that we will not be ashamed of the mark of the cross that is upon us. The mark of Jesus. That we will not be ashamed of the linen garments that we will be declarers of the Lamb's book of life. And that you will continue to use us as you see fit in this world. Though there be sorrow and suffering, we know it's only for a season. It's for such a short time. There's a joy that we have is a joy everlasting in the salvation that you promise. And Father, I just pray, I continue to pray, that those who are unmarked, unsealed, those who have not made a decision to trust Jesus with their lives will be compelled by Your Spirit, either to their hearts directly or through us as Your people, that You will save and that You will bring home. We pray in Jesus' name.